All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller, crops educator. Hi, I'm Brad Carlson, jumping the gun. So uh, today, uh, you know, we've been having a string of first-time guests here, Brad. Um, today we've got our, our small grain, our state small grain specialist, Yoakum uh, Wiersma. And uh, for those of us in southern Minnesota, maybe not as familiar with Yoakum. Um, you know, we are because we have relied on him to provide programming in the small grains arena. So welcome, Yoakum. Uh, thank you for having me here. And so, Yoakum, when we have a first-time guest, we kind of spend a little bit of time, you know, uh, looking back at the person's past. You know, where'd you come from? Where'd you get school? Those sorts of things. So uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Well, for those of you that never heard my accent, uh, not everybody talks like this in Northwest Minnesota, where I'm stationed. Um, I originally came from the Netherlands, came to grad school in 1991, finished my PhD here at the University of Minnesota in 1995 uh, under the guidance of Dr. Bob Bush, the springweed breeder at the time. And since that time, I've been the state extension agronomist or small grain specialist at the University of Minnesota. So as, as I was driving down last night uh, to the cities, um, I realized that it's another four months and I'll be 25 years in my job, which surprised me while I did the math driving down. Um, I hate to tell you this, I just had mine, don't expect a party. <laughs> No, unless I, you hold one yourself. No, it, it's just it's amazing. It's amazing how you know time flies when you're having fun. You know, like I said, I was trained as a breeder, and this job because my advisor actually was on the search committee said, "Why don't you? This is good practice. Why don't you just apply for this job?" And as you know, jobs at universities, job searches take a while, and in the meantime, I had. Two times did a job interview in private industry, didn't get a job offer. This job opened up initially under an, a three-year contract, and the rest is history, as they say. I'm still there. It's still there. So uh, back in the 90s, uh, what was the big hot issue of small grain production? So my position really got created because of the scab years in 93, 94, the Viserium head blight or scab. Um, they wanted more local resources in northwest Minnesota. You know, understand that you know 80% of the acres, if not more, is in northwest Minnesota. Historically, that's not the case, but in the last couple decades, that's what acreage is. And so they wanted the local resource, uh, which is why I got stationed at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center, even though I'm the state extension specialist. Well, it makes sense, though, in uh, prime small grain production uh, area, as well as uh, the, the pretty major disease impact. Did that scab uh, have a huge uh, impact on the number of acres of small grains we see in the state? Or So I, I've looked at, you know, small grains acreage, it doesn't matter if you look at oats, if you look at barley, if you look at, at wheat had already started declining prior to 93-94. Um, soybeans had already started moving north, and 93-94 accelerated that to some extent. The, the fastest drop in acreage, or the, the greatest drop in acreage, actually for, small, for wheat happened actually later, and for barley. Oats had already declined much earlier uh, with 
with basically moving out of the area the moment the horses moved away. Um, at, believe it or not, at one time there was four million acres of oats in southern Min. And this was in, as late as the early 70s. Hmm. Um, when I started, there was two and a half million acres of hard red spring wheat in predominantly west central and northwest Minnesota. We've been hovering around one and a half million acres for the last couple of years. The Freedom to Farm Bill, the 1997 Farm Bill, accelerated it, and then the advent of Roundup Ready uh, soybeans really also accelerated the decline in acres. The biggest decline that is probably more related to Fusarium head blight has, is, has been the barley acreage. The barley acreage, there used to be three quarters of a million acres of barley across the state, and we now barely break 100,000 Wow. 150,000. So so what's the big impact then with the barley production and, and head scab? So the, the, the challenge that came out of Fusarium head blight is that the industry basically developed, adopted a zero tolerance to the toxin that's associated with infections, deoxyvanol or vomitoxin. Uh, the big brewers at that point in time uh, that bought six-row malt, uh, Miller and Anheuser-Busch, basically wanted below the technical detection limit, which at the time was a half a part per million. And European brewers and malsters are a little bit, were and are a little bit more lenient. They're willing to take up to two. And in our production environment, Twos and below are feasible, below one or below a half is is hard. And so what we've seen is the acreage move into drier production areas, basically move west. Is, is the vomitoxin, is that, does that have human toxicity? I guess I'm not really even that familiar with it, or has it caused some other problem with the brewing? There, there is, there is. The FDA maintains a advisory level of in the processed product of one part per million. Um, so there is a food safety issue. Um, in the brewing industry, there is a second problem that once you get barley and you malt the barley that's above three parts per million, uh, you get a concept called gushing, where basically the beer comes at you even before, even if you don't shake the bottle. Oh, goody. Which is, you know, that's maybe fun if you're a college kid. Um, it's not as much fun when you're sitting on the por on the porch in the summer. I find that a little bit fascinating. I was at a meeting this summer, and uh, some of our our land grant colleagues from Ohio State were talking about producing malting barley in Ohio. Uh, sort of a combination between the 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 whole craft brewing industry and then also the desire to locally source products. And I was sort of questioning that because I know we've really not had, I mean, it's malting barley's moved out of its historical place in northwestern Minnesota. It's really not had a place at all in southern Minnesota because of this issue. I was really curious how, how it is you could grow it in Ohio with any success. I don't know. Okay, so let, let's take the history back a little bit further. I, I do like history, too. Remember, I grew up in a country that's a lot older than the U.S. And just to give you an idea, the farmstead that I grew up on 
was built in 1768. Um, so if we take a couple more decades backwards, prior to the prohibition, there was actually over 400,000 acres of barley south of the cities towards Rochester and the Iowa border. So New Ulm and the brewery in New Ulm was in the midst of it. Most of the barley in those days, and actually a lot of the spring wheat in those days, was produced in Southern Min. Not until they basically started breaking open the Dakotas did we see an influx of hardware spring wheat into the Twin Cities. Mill City was Mill City because there was local hardware spring wheat. The reason we have the largest malt house in the world in Shakopee is because there was a local supply of malt barley. So there was lots of barley ground here because there were a lot of Germans here. And so that's why there were a lot of small breweries prior to Prohibition. Uh, Shells is one of the few that's left. But they too have the same desire of sourcing locally. There's a lot of microbrewers even in Twin Cities that want to source local barley. And we can do it. Now, the, the, the challenge is, indeed, can you meet all the quality parameters? Um, I've been working with Shells for the last couple of years. We grow some barley every single year. There's one grower, a good friend of, of, of the Marty family, that grows some barley for Shells. Um, this year, because of the very late spring, we decided collectively not to grow any barley this year. That's one of the challenges with barley. You know, his, barley, as with oats, um, were commodities in a sense that the best of the crop, the cream of the crop, made it into the, the commodity market. The rest stayed on farm and was fed. So as acres have dwindled and there's no longer a, a on-farm use for those products. It, it, you've moved away from, a, from, in a way, to a specialty product. And, and making great becomes more important. And that sometimes requires a little bit of creativity. So in, in, I'll give you an example. In the case of, of the production in New Ulm, we had some bad staining basically weathering of the grain just prior to harvest okay that is probably makes it a little bit less suitable to use as a base malt for a lighter type of beer like an american lager where every single flaw in the barley is going to show up in the finished product if you however decide to roast that barley then some of those things kind of get covered up a little bit it doesn't change anything to the end attributes of what you're making so so a stout and things like that you have a little bit more forgiveness and so that kind of creativity is is then needed and, and the best way i try to explain it explain that to even folks out east because that trend of supplying of wanting to source local isn't restricted to ohio there is laws in even on the books in for instance new york state that demand this, uh, where they source local barley. And they haven't grown barley f for eons. All right, so so in an ideal world, I know recently it seems like winter starts early and legs on, at least the past handful of years here, we've had some 
less than ideal springs. Uh, but for a producer, uh, you know, what's the optimal planting date then in spring if, if, if you're looking at climate and knowing that you want to try to start it early? Um, what's safe, I guess? Believe it or not, you know, to me, the joke that I've had with growers is that you plant small grains in southern Maine the first time you don't get stuck. My dad said that they, uh, in 1957, they had all their small grains planted by the end of February. Yeah. So that's not uh, not out of the realm of reality to yeah. really, truly try to get it in earlier than we'd ever contemplate planting any other crop. So no, you, you want to be as early as possible. Um, the small grains, wheat, barley, oats, the spring cereals, actually are pretty tolerant to, to cold temperatures. Uh, they'll germinate if the soil temps are barely at 36 degrees. They'll be slow, but they'll be there. And if we have frost or winter return to us, oftentimes that in the spring comes with wet periods, so snow. So we might lose the, the initial first or second leaf. The crown, however, is still at an inch and a half if you did your depth control correct on, on the drill, and that crown is protected and it will push out another leaf and the stands will recover. So this year, Joachim, you were actually down to plant the, the barley trial we did in uh, outside of Rochester there at the Lawler farm, well, barley and oats, uh, like on one of the only suitable days for planting. I think it was probably like a six-hour window you had to, to get it done before we you know, descended back into winter. Uh, but that trial looked pretty good this year. Well, yeah, and that's the challenge of even doing trials is um, the, one of the things I tell growers even in northwest Minnesota, luck favors the prepared. We were set up, and when, you know, you and Lisa and I talked and I was explained about the window of maybe having half a day, we started driving. And it's a long haul from Crookston all the way down to, to Rochester. But by the time we got there, we had had just enough wind that we could work the ground. We had a perfect seat, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, we knocked a trial in, and we actually made it to the center, planted the center that same day yet, and then rained out the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the most beautiful small grain crops I can uh, I can remember seeing. How'd the how'd the yields turn out on it this year? Um, off the top of my head, because I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me, um, I got harvested in time. I think overall the data looked pretty good. I know it's part of the Minnesota Variety Trials Bulletin and the, or the Field Crop Trials Bulletin. The data's in there. I, overall, I was happy with the trials. Uh, yeah, from what I remember looking at it, it was, I want to say the trial average was 75 Probably. Bushels? I don't know. I I have to have Without a spreadsheet. Looking at, yeah, but it, it did turn out well. And again, For the that, barley. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is uh, it is available, uh, like you said, through the uh, the Minnesota Egg Experiment Station has their publication of yield trials, and that one I know for sure is available currently. So, I, I guess I'm kind of curious, uh, how do growers get paid for barley? I mean, uh, obviously, um, the malting house is you know, looking for something very specific that may not necessarily equate to the best yielding. They're looking for other characteristics. Uh, uh, is, it, is it a factor of that the, the grower just has to plant what they want and then see what happens? Or is there rewards for certain quality parameters? How do they do that? So barley 
anodes both I consider no longer a commodity I think we, we've even though they don't have the status as a as a specialty crop in in the in the legal sense to me they are a specialty crop where most of the market is is basically contract and within those contracts the specs are are very well set up uh, to the point that certain malsters will only purchase certain varieties and they have their acres locked up right around now through you know the beginning of winter and barley historically um, the malsters will, will have probably a whole year and it's gone down a little bit but it's coming back up a little bit they have an inventory of of barley that probably carries them at least six months if not a whole year and so they'll start contracting now based on what they have came through the pipeline this year uh, i know there was for instance for anheuser Busch contracted even some in the kimball area and and it, it ultimately is about relationships and development developing those relationships um, in the intermountain region uh, course um, has had contracts with individual growers that go, span generations. Um, here in the Midwest, we were longer a commodity, but in the last decade, I, I'd argue, and the same for oats, is it, it's a contract deal. So, sounds real similar to some of our identity preserved soybeans. I know uh, folks there would not dare grow. Uh, an IP soybean without having a contract in place yeah. to, to get a guarantee that someone's going to buy these at a higher level and, and they're going to grow the variety that they need uh, as far as the production, whatever that end point is for that specialty product. So Yeah, a lot of like canning crops, you know, but yeah. I, I, I guess so. So how do these production contracts work though? So let's say you do end up with vomitoxin, do you still get paid some guaranteed level for taking the risk or they, that... they vary a little bit by buyer okay um there tend to be act of god clauses in them but ultimately you have to make the quality okay um that's the biggest challenge and you know it's the risk reward and do you have alternatives so, i think it's important that you always have a plan b if you don't make the, the contract specs and therefore, why producers farther west are more interested in signing these is just less risk. I don't think it's necessarily less risk. It's it's they're either more you know they have a more of a historical database of, of knowing what they can and can't do, versus where if you come back into an area where you haven't had the crop for decades, you have to learn a whole bunch of things again about what you can and can't do with that crop. And so that learning curve is is too steep, and the, therefore the perceived risk is higher, and people shy away from it. it. You know, farming is risky enough as it is. So even if, and most farmers will recognize that broadening a rotation has all kinds of benefits, but you then have to have viable alternatives. I do think that small grains has is a viable alternative. It doesn't matter if it's oats, spring wheat, winter wheat rye for seed production there is opportunities but learning the ropes of that crop again compared to corn and beans and if you talk just southern min and even in northwest minnesota there's wheat growers that would be reluctant to start back into barley because they haven't had it on the farm for 20 years 
So, Yoakum, if, if if let's say we got a perfect year, we uh, we're going to contract some barley with somebody. Uh, it's a right situation. We got an early spring. We can get into the field and plant it. Uh, from that point forward, what are the things that are going to affect quality as far as as uh, the crop and meeting some of those specs? What other things could go wrong if we get it planted in a ideal timing? And if you look at bar, if we look at barley owed. And, and spring wheat production. I think we first have to recognize where the yield potentials are across southern mint. And I think for barley, we you should have to think somewhere between 75 bushels and maybe 90. There might be years where we're a little bit higher. Spring wheat, probably 65 to 80 for spring wheat. Winter wheat, 80 to 100 bushels should be feasible. Oats, I honestly think that oats, when we manage crown rust and have it in early and we have a decent spring, we should be able to get to 140 bushels um, under conventional practices. If you are in organic systems, the change, there's some challenges with disease management, uh, especially the fungal pathogens, that's hard, much, much harder. And then always, always the fertility issue, can I, you know, can I supply enough nitrogen to this crop to maximize grain yield? If you, if, if we start out with that yield potential, and we have indeed a good spring, the biggest risk is indeed high humidity and temperatures during grain fill for two reasons. A, it's a, the cool season grasses, so they're happier if we have cool nights and lower dew points because that really cuts down on respiration. And it doesn't matter if we still reach 80 or 85 during the daytime or even 90. Cooler nights, really drier years, really make the crop. And then the second thing is the moment we have those higher dew points, Fusarium head blight has a better chance and higher risk. And so that right away affects quality. Uh, in the case of barley, if we have the really right conditions, we really see a yield penalty in the case and the quality concerns in the case of spring wheat. So, you know, uh, with head blight then, fungicide management, is that a feasible option or are you just kind of out of luck if it's a bad year? And, and No, I, I, if you are in a conventional production system, um, we have enough data to know which fungicides work, how to apply those fungicides and what to expect from them. We can't unfortunately cure the disease with this. We can prevent it and in some cases prevent up to about 80% of the disease, which in most years will get us very close or under those tolerances that the market wants. Hmm. I'm uh, I'm still distracted for ever since the moment you said 240 bushel oats. Uh, 140. My, I was going to say, okay, okay, that, that's a little more in line. Well, before you were talking, though, about oats, being nearly a, a specialty product uh, so the question is um say you got a producer running a couple thousand acres and the winter's kind of coming down where you know we had this a few years ago where it got warm early and we had some guys were tempted to go actually some guys did go out and plant corn in march just to say they did if a producer decides, you know what, I think this is shaping up to be a really good year where I'm going to be able to get in the field and decides to grow 200 acres of oats to just throw in the mix and give it a shot, is he going to be able to sell it? Where's it going to go if it's if it's kind of reached that status? 
there is still here and there some elevators that are aggregators for the big mills. Remember, the two largest oat mills are within a stone throw's reach of the Twin Cities, one in Iowa, one in Winona. And so there is always local demand. Um, but it, the challenge is indeed finding the elevators that, that do. Um, if, if you're that serious, and if you still already have that thought uh, of maybe I will, I would start already now and, and just have that idea in the back of your mind that you know if, if we indeed have a good spring again rather than the last two springs that were horrible um, that you can indeed be that nimble and, and start seeding the crop. I, I remember you were talking about there being uh, extensive oat acreage in southern Minnesota and I sort of remember that I was born in 1969 and so I remember, well, it was always grown as a nurse crop for alfalfa. I mean, you just, you just did, you know. But uh, I do remember uh, coming into the 80s, at some point, my grandfather harvesting some oats and then suddenly finding out nobody around would buy it. Uh, turned into quite an issue, I think. They ended, up, uh, they ended up feeding it to cattle because they couldn't get rid of it. And I think that was the last time he ever grew oats. Yeah. And that challenge is indeed markets work and farmers have a chance to manage risk if indeed you have that price discovery locally and and that's the hard part of even reintroducing small grains or any other crop for that matter is those are elements that are needed to make crops viable and so you have to do that homework before and you can't do it after unless you have plan b which generally involves feeding it yeah yeah uh, but fortunately, we've maintained uh, pretty good wheat markets in southern Minnesota just because the milling industry is still around. So, so that is a viable option. And one, that's one of the things when we talk to small grains, you know, we'll do the southern wheat tour, as, as we call it in extension, where I'm on the road for seven, five days straight, and starting in Rochester and ending in Benson. Anything south of I-94, we call the south. Sure. Just, 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 just like we call Brainerd up north, yeah. sure. Um, we'll, we'll do this extension circle. I think it's we're up to six locations this year. That's one of the things we talk about is indeed where do I market this? And we tell growers, be willing to truck it. Be willing to bring it down to whether it's Winona, New Prague, um, there's another one. They still processing in Mankato, or is that? Is, yeah, Mankato. Yeah. That's the other town I was thinking of. Yeah. Mankato. There's still a mill, or to the barges in Savage. Mm -hmm. So, kind of probably what you're alluding to there is they have some potential to store the grain in order to hit the market. You aren't necessarily going to be trying to get rid of it immediately, or no. I think on-farm storage for small grains is important. Willingness to truck it to those outlets that do buy. And just to give you an idea, the Winona and, and New Prague are looking always for winter wheat because they have to basically transport that upstream to get it to them. And in any flower, there is always a portion of hard red, hard red winter wheat. They're even starting to talk about being able to grow some soft red winter wheat for cookies, etc. So there is always there is there are always some opportunities, but again, that those is those are the relationships you have to develop. 
I know we used to hear a lot of complaints when I was a, the county educator in Rice County. Of course, we had uh, close access to the uh, to the mill in New Prague, and there there are growers still down that corridor coming down Highway 13, as you know we've talked about. And we're all aware, um, but a lot of grumbling that. Uh, the, uh, the wheat coming out of the Dakotas was high protein, the stuff coming out of southern Minnesota was low protein, and that the mill really liked that low protein because they could combine the two and just hit right on the nose exactly where they wanted to be, but they wouldn't pay well for the low protein stuff anyway, even though they needed it. <laughs> well, you know, markets are what they are and they'll do whatever, you know, whatever you have is not what they want. That, because you and everybody else have the same within a geography. Um, it, 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 and that's in a way, it is what it is. You have to pencil that against what the other commodities are doing. That's the, don't stare blind at coulda, shoulda, woulda, because that doesn't pencil. Yeah, well. It doesn't pay bills. You know, there's a lot of small grain production happens in southern Minnesota uh, that adds into a few other factors. A fair amount of it goes in where somebody's going to do some drainage installation and they're taking advantage of uh, a pricing break on that because you can get into the field in, in uh, mid-August potentially. Uh, there's also some places where producers want to be putting manure on a little bit early. Now that of course requires that a cover crop gets planted if you're putting manure on before Labor Day. But, uh, you know, another one that I think is really intriguing is we continue to see a lot of the research and advancement of soil health practices. Uh, growing a small grain uh, affords you the opportunity to plant a cover crop and really actually get it growing and functioning uh, before it, it uh, terminates for the winter. You know, Ryan, you and I have seen some evidence of places where there's been cover crops like in a prevented planting situation really got going a big yield advantage the following year for growing corn in those those uh, fields. And so um, that's something I think that's worth exploring is in, instead of uh, just looking at the economics of that one crop, look at the economics of all three. Uh, extending the rotation out and potentially getting some soil health benefits of growing a cover crop following a small grain, I think there's really a, potentially a fit there for a lot of producers. You know, I, for years now, I've tried to introduce this concept called opportunity cost in that when you look at rotational research, we can show all the rotational research that's been done over the decades. But the moment you introduce a third crop or a fourth crop for that matter, it depends on how complicated you want to get rotation, crop rotations work, even in the absence of trying to break disease and pest problems. Rotation in of itself works. The, the most beautiful one, I think, that is in the region is the University of Wisconsin's trial. You know, Joe Lauer currently is still the steward of that. That, that trial's been going on now almost four or five decades. It's, it's a wealth of information. And when you introduce small grains in that rotation, corn indeed only needs a one-year break. And it's, it's amazing how corn rebounces after a single year. Soybeans needs a longer break. You see there the rotational benefit the moment there's a two-year break. Okay, small grains don't necessarily pencil um, in of themselves. But the moment you you give the benefit of the rotation back to the rotational partner. In other words, that 20 bushels of corn 
really is because you had a rotational partner. And so that's called an opportunity cost in an ag-ag-econ. And that opportunity cost should be attributed to the rotational partner. That makes wheat look not as bad, depending on the price. You know, and, and so that's a concept that I've been trying to promote just to make the black sheep in the family look a little bit better. Um, but that's the part of, you know, farming versus trying to survive another year in the current price climate, which is awful. So if you go back, I know when I was a kid, uh, we still saw a little winter wheat completely disappeared by the 80s. If you saw wheat, it was spring wheat. Um, coming into the 90s, I got hired an extension in 94, um, only spring wheat if we saw wheat. Uh, all of a sudden here, about 15 years ago, we started to see producers start looking at winter wheat again in southern Minnesota. Um, some of the producers that I know that grow small grains were pointing their finger at imazethapir, uh, even though that wasn't ever on the label, that that caused a problem. What, what, what happened? We're suddenly growing winter wheat in southern Minnesota again, where it had disappeared for 20 years. So carryover issues are real. And um, we get some surprises now and then. I think that some of those anecdotal uh, evidence is, is probably real. The challenge is that it's you're chasing ghosts because so much depends on what happened that fall temperature, moisture status, everything else. But I've encountered it myself in the variety trials. And there is genetic differences between the varieties. Some varieties tolerate this carryover, even though we should be out in the clear, according to the labels, uh, fall planted, you get some weird things you don't see the next spring with the spring cereals. And now that we are back to using a lot of pre's in the corn and soybean world, that complicates things a little bit um, and we have some questions there and we work our through it the best way we can um, it, it's we know some of the problems and we know when those situations can arise and s I've steered people away from certain scenarios go like no I don't think we want to do that so what about a, like a winter cereal rye? It seems to be kind of a, a, a workhorse, and uh, I've had the opportunity to plant it in some, some projects where we've had pre-emergent herbicide, pretty tough pre-emergent herbicide programs uh, put down, and it seems to establish pretty well. And I granted now it's been two years where we've had above-average precip and pretty uh, normal to above-normal temperature regimes, but... Uh, uh, any comments on that if it's wheat that's more susceptible or I would actually argue uh, based on my circumstantial evidence um, that rye might actually be worse off than wheat when it comes to sensitivity on certain AIs now having said that rye is a very tough crop the reason rye to me is is the darling of the cover crop is it's relatively easy to establish after any crop because it is so drought tolerant. Well, it should be noted that before it was the darling of the cover crop world, it was the darling of the organic world. Yeah. I mean, most organic producers were using rye as a smother crop and a nurse crop and so forth. Yeah. So, so, so rye has a bunch of benefits and, and the easiest one, you know, for, it's a good scavenger for nutrients. 
It has uh, probably a better root system, especially the older varieties because they're taller than tall. And so we generally say that whatever is above ground is below ground as well. Um, they're good scavengers for nutrients. They're relatively hardy, if not the hardiest of all the, all the, the small grains. And so they're very tough to kill in Minnesota, even compared to winter wheat. Um, you know, and so a couple of years ago, that question of if you're looking at seed production, which of the rice is the best for us to produce seed for, for into the cover, cover crop market, that actually led to reestablishing of the rye variety trials um, that we've been published for the last couple of years. And we found all the older varieties. You know, nobody in the U.S. had worked on rye probably for two, three decades and not even the Canadians who tend to graze it for uh, their rye whiskey. Um, but in the meantime, in the European Union, we've had hybrid rye, and there's efforts in both Germany and Poland, and so I brought some of those hybrid ryes over, and those actually, you know, compared to our open-pollinated varieties, have a yield advantage of somewhere like 30, 40, in some cases 50 bushels. And so we have hybrid rye now yielding in trials 130 to 140 bushels and in production fields in the last couple of years exceeding 100 to 110 bushels. And that makes them very interesting, I think, across the whole landscape. The market for rye is like that for oats. It's, it's still a very specialty crop. Um, there's only a few outlets that really move rye. Uh, some of it goes into, indeed, in the distilling industry. Some of it goes in the micro-distilling industry. Uh, I've been working with a micro-distiller in northwest Minnesota, uh, Far North Spirits, and we've actually looked at how different rye varieties actually taste on the still. And there are differences there, too. Kind of you do panel testing when you do that? We did the panel testing <laughs> on the white whiskey, actually, in this department. Um, oh, wow. And some of them, I've never had a lot of moonshine in my life, but some of them I would steer away from. Because the rye is kind of notorious for adding kind of a spicy element to different things, and so I suppose it's, uh, what are you picking up, pepper versus cayenne pepper? Or? I, I, you know... When we did the taste panel, you have to do these two things when you do taste testing. And what is your first impression, and then how does it stick around, and what's your second impression? Okay, the first impression on one of them, just to give you an idea, to me, and that just might be me, smelled like geraniums. Ooh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and like then, a pyrethrin insecticide? Yeah, and, and, then, <laughs> and then the, the aftertaste on another one was like really bad tequila. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Grassy, green, bad okay. tequila. Okay. And and so there is differences. Now huh. the magic happens, and that's any whiskey distiller will tell you that the magic happens in the cask. And it's all those compounds that might give you weird flavors in the moonshine when they do their magic with the wood alcohols and the wood sugars, you get some really interesting things. Hmm. And so this micro distiller in, in Halloc now is actually thinking of releasing limited edition 
varietal rye, not just varietal whiskeys, where he says, well, this is variety X and this is variety Y, and this is what they do um, after they've been in a cask for a while. Interesting. So any other big differences or or advantages to the the hybrid cereal rye? Is it uh, other than the yield? I mean, you're talking about some pretty extraordinary gains in in yield, but uh, any other, you know, benefits for growing that? The benefits are much, much better agronomics, shorter, not as uh, prone to lodging, Um, obviously higher yields. What we've seen, too, in its preliminary data, much better tolerance to, for instance, ergot, which is still the biggest production challenge in, in rye. Because it's a cross-pollinated species, we tend to see more ergot compared to barley and oats and wheat. Um, the hybrids appear to have a lot less ergot than some of the open-pollinated varieties. Hmm. Well, interesting. Anything else you guys want to talk about today? No, I, this is all just really fascinating. I've always, I've always found this topic interesting because it kind of mixes the, uh, the history of our agricultural production systems in Minnesota with our present, and I guess we've kind of covered that. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for uh, Joachim for being on today. We'll provide some links to the things he was mentioning earlier during the podcast here, uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Mm-hmm.